All right, Revelation 14. This morning we are going to remember what it means to proclaim the eternal gospel. And there's some, there's some confusing stuff in here, pardon me. You have to bear with a, a weepy pastor. All right, let's look at what the, the Lord has for us to remember and be stirred by for our endurance in the faith. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for, endure, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, bless are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was, wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Lord, we trust and we know that this passage is given to us 
for endurance. Lord, we want to keep your commandments and we want to stay faithful in Christ. So may that be the outcome of our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What place do you think fire and brimstone has in preaching the gospel? That fire and sulfur, originally it's brimstone. And you hear that many, uh, maybe you've come across the fire and brimstone preachers. When I was at LSU every spring, there was a couple that would come to Free Speech Alley and stand on the bench right there in front of the union to go down. And they would spend a week preaching. And it was like the lady had the updo, big old dress, and the man was in a three-piece polyester suit way back from like 1983. I mean, it was time warp central. But they would preach only fire and brimstone. And they wouldn't engage anybody. It was just, and a crowd would form. Every single day, a crowd would form. And there was, there was a vehemence coming from them. And they were calling people to repentance they were telling everybody, this is, you, you, in, you will endure the wrath of God if you don't repent. But what happened in their message is they didn't help anybody know what to turn toward. Repentance is turning away from sin, but towards something. Uh, a couple times I went out there and I would, I would stand next to somebody who was shouting at him. Because everybody's shouting back at these two who were just oblivious. They just felt they were following or obeying Jesus to preach, and that's what they were doing. And I go back, I'd stand around for like the loudest one. I was like, hey, man, what do you think about this? Man, I said, look, I'm a Christian. I don't sound like that, just so we know. And he's like, really? And so I'd strike up conversations with the loudest one that was shouting, just so they would understand. there's There's a gospel message. But... Since we don't like the fire and brimstone stuff, I think the pendulum has swung such that we don't talk about the wrath of God maybe enough or at all. So what place does it have? It has a place, and that's what we're going to see. Remember Jonathan Edwards' sermon, you may have heard of this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? That sounds like, whoa, would you, would you be able to preach that sermon today? That's well, Just turn people off, they wouldn't listen? Do you know that sermon, and he read it in a very monotone, sinner, you walk across the flames of the lake of fire as a spider on its web. Do you know God used that to start the first great awakening in this country? Bringing people to Jesus. So many people came to Christ that they closed up all the saloons because nobody was going drinking anymore. Everybody was like, you know what? I mean, my life just, I mean, it had community effect. But here, we would think, "Ah, it's a little too affronting. It has a place. This chapter in Revelation is all about the gospel. Remember, it's encouraging news for the people who are hearing it. And it's coming right after the vision of the beasts. They have the dragon and the two beasts. You have the first beast that represents the political power. You have a second beast that represents uh, a religious power. And they are waging war on the church, on the witnesses of Christ, on the offspring of the woman. So there's spiritual conflict happening. And this is to encourage the believers who have just seen and heard of of John's vision of these beasts. But we see in this chapter that there is the experience of the gospel to those who are saved. There is the proclamation of the gospel to save. And there's the ingathering of the gospel that saves. 
So along with the original readers, and remember, these, these are the believers in the seven churches that are being written to and has a cumulative effect for all everybody in the church age. So it's for us. We, we are part of the seven churches. Facing persecution, remember the, the wiles of the evil one, persecution, seduction, and deception. So along with these original readers, we need the reminder that our lives are to be characterized by the gospel to shine bright in a fallen world. That's what this is about. Following Jesus wherever he goes. That's what this is about. So in this first paragraph, verses 1 through 5, I think we have a gospel experience, and this gospel experience is singing in the presence of the Lamb. We are first told about Mount Zion. Zion was a word in the Old Testament that referred to Jerusalem, God's place, the place of his presence, and the the center where his people are, where God dwelled with his people in Jerusalem. That was Zion. And you had psalmists and, and prophets that would look forward one day to a Mount Zion, a Zion that would do away with the one that we see naturally, a spiritual place where God dwells with his people, and there's no more sin. They were looking for heaven. So the Lamb is there on Mount Zion. And with he, he is with his people, the 144,000. Remember, uh, we believe, I think this is a symbol for all believers during the church age, those who come to Christ. But the lamb is there with his people. Jesus is present with his people. And then look, there is a, a roaring voice of worship. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. Church, that's not God's voice. That's the redeemed voice. Those are the voices of the redeemed who collectively get together and when they sing the song of the redeemed, which is the one that nobody else can learn because those who have only tasted of the the greatness of Jesus and his saving work and, and feel the glory that comes with him forgiving our sins and us living for him for all eternity. The song of the redeemed is a conquering voice. It's a conquering song. It's the song of those who are conquering in their faith. But it is a roaring, thunderous song. The song of the redeemed is powerful. And that's what's being described. So in Jesus' presence, this is a rocking worship time. And there is a loud roar, this collective voice of those who have conquered through the Lamb. That's a cool thing to think about. But church, that doesn't await us. We just experienced it. It will one day culminate in something beyond our imagination. But it's something we taste every time we are with the redeemed singing. That's why it's important to get with the redeemed, so we can sing together. Because that's what God desires for us to do. But it, oh, doesn't it, it awaken something in us? There's maybe a song that we've sung thousands of times, but this, it, it, it hits us a different way. And that's on purpose. God wants his redeemed together in this chorus. But then he, he then shows that here, this new song, before the throne, they're singing before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one can learn it except those who are redeemed. And in verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, that looks really confusing, right? I think it's representative for believers who are walking in purity. 
So what we have is this transition. Not, not only is a song being sung with words, but a song is being sung with life. There's a life that sings. It's the, the redemption that sings through us, and we see purity first. These male virgins are a figurative for believers who resist idolatry and immorality. I think that women is, is attached to the prostitute Babylon with her seduction. I think there's a, a connection there. But this is the, these are those who are walking in purity, which is the call for every believer to, to flee sinfulness, to flee sexual immorality and pursue God with everything we are. So the life that sings is a pure life. It's also an obedient life. Following the Lamb. I love this phrase. Following the Lamb wherever He goes. That's what our lives are about. Jesus was like that with the Father. What I see Him doing, I do. And He was a setting example for us. What what I see Jesus doing, I'm going to do. And we see what He does. He describes what He does in the Gospels. And we're to walk in that as well. So there's purity and there's obedience and there's also righteousness. Look, in verse 5, in their mouth was no lie, no lie was found for they are blameless. I don't think this is uh, only a physical representation of the words coming out of their mouths. I think that's there. But it's also, uh, remember, what comes out of your mouth starts in your heart. And so I think this is a righteousness component where it's being pointed to the life that sings is the life that has the Spirit of God alive. The heart of stone has been taken out and a heart of flesh has been placed thereby and the Spirit dwells in there. And so what comes out of the mouth is Spirit wrought and Spirit life for those who are uh, walking uh, Spirit life for those who, who can listen to that song and hear something that they need in a lost and fallen world. But I think the blamelessness is more of a blamelessness of character as well as actions. But remember the Apostle Paul says we are to live, in Ephesians 5, we're to live above reproach, meaning that no accusation can be brought to us, no accusation of hypocrisy, no accusation of evil, no accusation of immorality, living a blameless life. Now remember... uh, James chapter 1 lets us know that we, what gets us down the road to blameless is the trials. God's using those trials and the suffering. So we're not supposed to be surprised by them. Why? Because God's doing a work in order to prove our righteousness in front of those who would want to mock, in front of those who would want to uh, bring a reproach. So there is a gospel experience of singing with the Lamb in His presence, and there's a gospel experience of living that song out, living out the song of the redeemed in purity, obedience, and righteousness. And then in verses 6 to 13, I think we see the gospel proclamation. We have the contours of the eternal gospel, I think, represented by the three angels. When he sees one angel flying overhead, (coughs) excuse me, uh, I think... Remember, the third angel brings the fire and brimstone. But what I think we see here are three elements that should be represented in in faithful preaching or faithful witness, faithful sharing the gospel. It doesn't mean mean we're equally devoted to each one. We we know we, we meet the need of somebody. So if somebody who's afraid of God's wrath, they just know God's wrath rests upon them. Romans 1 tells us everybody, nobody's got an excuse. Everybody knows when they look at creation, God is there. There's a separation. He doesn't like me. I'm still trying to bring my works. Everybody knows that. 
And that's why most every religious system on the earth resembles one another because the basic premise is God's mad at me and I need to bring him something to appease him. The problem is that whatever we bring is not going to work. It's monopoly money. It's not going to work. We have to bring what Jesus did. That's the only, that's what separates biblical Christianity from any world religious system that's ever existed or will ever exist on the planet. But here are the three contours. One, Jesus has come near this first angel. He is near. A loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, I think there, there's an assumption of, of a full gospel understanding, because John, remember, is writing to these seven churches. They're believers. They're, I think he's writing with the assumption, hey, you know the gospel, but here, this is the eternal gospel. Preach it. The hour has come. The hour of Jesus as the judge. The hour of God's judgment has come. This means flee the self-idolization that our culture and our, our own humanity breeds in us. But fear God. Give him glory. Turn away from everything. Fear God. Give him glory. Instead of stealing his glory for ourselves. Now, this judgment that has come, I think, is, is the fact that it's the awareness that Jesus' arrival brings to our separation. When Jesus is around, people feel a separation from God. That's why everybody loves and they're okay with talking about God, but as soon as you bring up Jesus, something changes, right? Why? Because when we bring up Jesus, automatically we know I'm separated from God. That's a spiritual thing going on. I don't know if people really understand that's happening, but we as believers understand that's happening. And there is this call Worship God. Forget yourself. Worship God. Stop idolizing yourself. Stop, stop the navel-gazing. Just, just stop. Fear God. And worship Him. And give Him glory. And it's a worship of God that's not, it's not, it's not a worship of self. It's not a worship of idols. It's not a worship of materialism or a worship of something that we think can bring us peace in a moment. And I bring that point that Jesus has come near because that's what Jesus announced in his own inaugurating his gospel ministry with the gospel message in Mark 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus coming saying, now is the time for salvation. Pay attention, but also respond to it. Trust God. And in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples two by two, he tells them one of the instructions is heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So look, in our gospel proclamation, what we tell people is Jesus is near. He just hasn't come. That, yeah, he's come and he's still here. You know what makes everything that we believe about the Bible true? Think about that. What, what, what makes this true? Just because we, well, now I got a hearty belief that God said it and, and just forget it, the rest. Why? Why do we believe that? Here's why. Because Jesus rose from the dead. So that makes everything that he said true. You know what he said? 
that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And he looked at the Old Testament, and he thought the Old Testament was true. Therefore, it's all true because he rose from the dead. So we, we have a solid rock that is living. He is alive. And that's why the faith that we have is an active faith, and it is a growing faith, and it is a, a faith that sings the redemption song and lives the redemption song so others can join in it as well because God is not finished saving us. Saving people. He's not finished adding to his church. He's not, there, there are other sheep that are not of this fold that need to hear his voice and he uses us so they will hear the song of the redeemed and want in on it. So, first angel represents the first contour of Jesus has come near and he is here. The second angel announces that Babylon is fallen. I think this is a proclamation that all idolatrous pursuits are doomed. They're done. We have to stop looking at secondary features that we think will bring us peace and security in life. We've got to stop looking at self-made or man-made remedies for what, we, what will, will never solve our, our separation from God. And so we see Jesus is near. Stop looking everywhere else. Give him glory because he created everything. Don't make images of what you see and hear. No, he created everything. And everything that is idolatrous is going, it's, it's already fallen. Babylon thinks representative of all world powers, all peoples who oppose God in their pride. And it goes back, it, it hearkens to Nebuchadnezzar who ruled Babylon, who, who ruled Babylon in pride. And he was humbled because of his pride. Babylon is also seductive. There's a sexual immorality that Babylon wants everybody to drink of. And it's the attack, I think, that we deal with most in our culture. And the call for us as believers is to be aware. We, we, we have the benefit of being able to walk out here and not face uh, the persecution of, of death because of our faith. But we walk out of this church and what happens, we face seduction all the time. Constantly. But here is our, our response. Remember, Peter says, be sober-minded. Think rightly about life. But Babylon is also fallen. It's done. They, Babylon does not win. God wins. And even though seduction is still happening, the city's future is doomed. It's like when you're watching uh, a football game, Saints game, LSU game, and we're losing and there, it's that moment that you, with Drew Brees in, you always knew there was a chance, even with remaining minutes and seconds left. But there's an interception. He throws an interception, and all of a sudden, with 30 seconds left, you know, no timeouts. The game's over. You know, sometimes in those, uh, I'll, usually very frustratedly, it's over when I'm watching a game. And my wife will say, but, but there's still 39 seconds on the clock. No, it's over. We can't get the ball back. It's just done. So look, in life, Babylon, there's still time on the clock, but it's over. Game over. Babylon does not win. God is near, and he is saving those. But we have to live a life that looks so appealing to those who are still doomed in their rebellious pursuits of idols. But look, the third angel, and this is where things get heavy. Choices have consequences. Hell is real. And hell 
is really bad. It's really bad. But in the gospel proclamation, the word gospel means good news. So we think, well, if we're bringing good news, why are we going to do that? Why are we going to bring the fire and brimstone? Now, we bring it in love. We don't stand on a, a bench yelling at people constantly. We have, to, we have to do this in love. We do it with tears because we, we understand our own destiny before Christ. And we would want to, no, nobody wants to experience that. But here, bad news helps the good news be good news. Because there is a judgment and there is a wrathful destiny that awaits people who die in their rebellion. And we, we need to know what awaits the rebellious, to know what Jesus, we're reminded what Jesus saved us from, but it motivates our compassion and it motivates our love for others to let them know what awaits them. Those who worship the beast will face God's wrath. Like in the middle of verse 9, if anyone worship the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is a scary verse. It's a heavy verse. We have to remember also that people who who face God in hell, they do so because of their own choice. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, I think helps with this understanding. The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself, without God, defying God, having God against him, and he shall have his preference. Nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action and wrath is to give men what they choose. And then in all, in all its applications, nothing more and equally, nothing less. So we ask God to break the stronghold of pride in everybody. So they will hear his voice and turn to him. God is the righteous judge who will execute judgment. He will pour the full strength of his wrath into the cup. And this, this fire and sulfur hearkens the image of Sodom and Gomorrah that were, were destroyed by this. But remember, remember Abraham's interaction with God before God destroyed it? And he started, God, if there's 50 there, will you, will you, save, will you preserve them? Sure, yeah, Abraham, 50, yes. But Abraham goes all the way down to five. God, if there are five there, will you preserve them? He said, Yes. And God wasn't reluctant, like, all right, all right, stop already. Five, sure. No, 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 no. God was using that moment with Abraham for Abraham to understand something about God's heart so we then could understand something about God's heart is that he wants to save people. So he says, I'm not going to destroy them even if there's five righteous there. We learned there was only one righteous. Second Peter tells us that righteous Lot was saved. Now, you look at Lot like, Righteous? His actions weren't too rightness, no, righteous. No, he, God, he was chosen by God. So there was a blameless about his relationship with God. Even though he was in the midst, he was tormenting his soul night and day, Second Peter tells us. But what do we learn about God? He wants to save. And he wants to deliver souls from his wrath. And we can go into the, why, why even, 
have a hell? Why even punish people? I don't know fully, but here's what I, I know from Scripture. That we understand God's love more by understanding his wrath. Now, we wouldn't write it that way, but God, in his wisdom, that's unimagined, he simply says, I, I want you to know the depth of my love for you. And so I want you to also know the opposite of my love, which is my furious, righteous, appropriate judgment, wrath poured out on sinful humans who die in their rebellion because they did not want God. Remember, we, we did have one that drank that cup for us. When Jesus in Gethsemane, Gethsemane said, let this cup, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. He drank every last drop in that cup. And that's what, what motivates and postures us to sing the song of the redeemed because we know he has saved us. Not because of any righteous works that we have done, but simply because of his grace. He just loves us. Even though we are toddlers sometimes in our behavior toward him, he just continues to love us into his grace. And remember this, that here's the scary part, scariest part of verse 10. Look at the, the fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You know, think about this, that God is present in hell. This is not that okay, God just gives people over. Now you're going to know what it's life without me. That's incomplete. Uh, in heaven, we know all of God's love and no wrath. In hell, they know all of God's wrath and no love because the clock ran out. Jesus reminded his disciples, remember, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying, hey, don't fear people. Don't even fear the devil. Who you really have to fear is God the judge. And this torment, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. There is an eternality about this torment without end and rest. This is serious and it is grievous. It's grievous to think of those who have already died and are existing in this state. And it's grievous to know that those who deny God don't choose him and love themselves have this as their destiny if they do not repent. And even those that we know and love, it's grievous. And that should motivate our posture when we talk about the fire and brimstone stuff. We don't come in from a judgment category, we come in from a compassion category, but the truth is the truth. And this is what awaits people if they do not repent of their sins. But in verse 12 and 13, there's a reminder to the faithful. There's always a reminder to the faithful. One, keep on enduring. Endure. Keep, 
Keep following God. Keep your faith in Christ. And then in verse 13, I think he's showing that God is a refuge for the faithful. Their deeds follow them, meaning their deeds announce their faith. Their faith is evidenced in their works because they follow Jesus wherever he goes. And there's a rest component in that as well. There's a, a blessed in deeds as a spirit that they may rest from their labors. So even before heaven, I think there's a rest that we experience in God, in the spirit, because God's saying, hey, good job. Good job. Keep going. Keep going. And then the third section, I think we see a gospel ingathering, which is a ripe harvest. Uh, this, for me, I still don't know where I land on interpreting this section. Uh, there's a few different landing zones for interpretation and for understanding. And, but whatever the landing zone, it seems that this represents, this reaping, it represents the final gathering of all peoples of the earth at the end of time. Now, what we see clearly is that Jesus is the one who sits on the throne, or sits on the cloud, wearing a crown. He is, again, a reference to... Uh, one like a son of man. That's a reference to Jesus, we believe. But I think in looking at this, there's some, there's some scriptures that tie in. And God, in his wisdom, can mean all three of these things. We don't have to land on one. But here's, what, here's what's been going on in my mind. One, uh, that Joel 3.13 would be something that would guide the interpretation of this passage. And it's a reaping where Joel gives a prophecy to the people of Israel, but saying, hey, one day God's going to, he's going to reap the nations. He's going to just bring everybody in and they're going to face judgment. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. So there's a judgment that God is gathering sinful nations to judge them. Now this could mean that Jesus coming and reaping uh, could be for the believers first. Could this represent the rapture where God, remember Jesus said in the, when that day comes, the day of the Lord, uh, there'll be two working in a field. One will go, the other will be left. Could this reaping be that? I don't know. Uh, so maybe there's a grain harvest of reaping believers. And maybe the second paragraph is a grape harvest of unbelievers that the angels come. And this would, this would be the grim reaper. There's nobody left. No salvation left. He's coming to put everybody into the wine press of God's wrath. And it will, be, it will be torturous and bloody. So this could mean a reaping of sinful nations. This could also represent the reaping at the end of time for the final judgment that we see in Matthew. The parable in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. Remember, Jesus tells the parable that a sower went out to sow, but then somebody came at night and put in weeds and a servant said, hey, do you want us to go clean out all the weeds? And Jesus says, well, the owner of the vineyard says, no. At the end, then when both are together, we'll take everything and separate them. This could be representative of that. Matthew 25, the final judgment, where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. He tells the sheep, you've done well. They said, when? He said, to the least of these. You've done it to me. He tells the goats, you didn't honor me. You didn't help me at all. Well, we didn't know you were around. Oh, no, to the least of these. That's when it shows up in those little crooks and crannies of our lives. Our faithfulness shows up. And then they go out to the eternal torment. They are, are put in the hellfire. So this is, is this a reaping for final judgment? Quite possibly. Uh, but there's another perspective that is intriguing, and it's a reaping of believers. 
could this be a reaping of believers? Uh, there, there's some images that don't quite get along with the sickle. You don't use a sickle to gather grapes. You pick grapes off of a vine. And so the sickle just represents God bringing everybody in. But check this out. Um, the grape harvest could be the connection and the vine. Uh, look at verse Second half, the last, the last part of verse 18. Putting your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. Remember Jesus in John 15 says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Go and bear fruit, bear grapes. So could this be a connection to Jesus as the vine? And there's, which and even in reading this over the first time in verse 20, the wine press was trodden outside the city. Uh, that is a... I wonder if that's a clue phrase for the original readers to to hearken back to what Jesus did. Remember the parable of the tenants, Matthew 21. And they took him, Jesus said, here, uh, owner hires everybody, comes back as a time for fruitfulness from this vineyard. And he sends people, but they kill all these guys and send them away empty-handed. And he says, I'll send my son. They've got to listen to my son. And here's what they did to the son. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches into a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the fruits in their seasons. So maybe is this, this, this is a reference to what Jesus would do. Remember when he went to Golgotha, that was outside the city of Jerusalem, on a hill right outside. In Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So with the vine and outside the city, could this be pointing to Jesus in the lives of his people? So what's being reaped are the believers who have already trusted Christ. And look, could this be? Another proclamation of gospel power? Could this be pointing to Jesus' work to save us from God's wrath because he himself was put into the winepress of his wrath? And could, could the blood that flowed from the winepress not represent the, the, the sorrow of those who die, but maybe represent the power of the blood of Christ to save? Is God telling his people, here's what salvation looks like. I've put my own son in the winepress of my wrath and his blood flows. And remember, we, we sing songs about the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus. It's kind of weird when you think about it. We sing about blood. We're a bunch of vampires. No, that just we celebrate Jesus' blood and we have been redeemed by his imperishable blood. I, this, I, I'm going back and forth still. I'm excited about more people can be saved. That's what I'm excited about. The blood that flows, could it be indicative up to the horse's bridle? The 1600 stadia is the distance from Tyre, which is the north of the boundary, the northern boundary of Israel, down to Egypt, the southern boundary of Egypt. So is, is this blood that's flowing and up de- deep to a horse's bridle? I mean, this is unfathomable blood, right? Could God be saying, there's blood for all of those who call on me? for redemption, to be saved. The formula for 1,600, four, four times four times 10 times 10, the f- four represents uh, humanity, 
Remember the four living creatures at God's creation, but you also have the ten, which represents completeness. So this is, maybe this is a complete, a, represent, a representation of exponential complete salvation for men and women. Yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> it's fun to imagine though, isn't it? And like I said, maybe it's a combination of all three. And, and we'll learn when that day comes or if we're in heaven already, we'll just learn. Oh, that, God, that's what you meant by that. But here, the, the eternal gospel, that's still our experience and that's still our proclamation as we sing with our lives. So really the charge is keep singing the gospel. Keep singing the song of the redeemed because oh, sing it with our words, sing it with our lives. God's not finished saving people. And I pray, I pray often that God would use us to bring people into the kingdom. So I'd ask you today, have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ for salvation or are you still trying to come with your own performance, your own works, your own ideas and and God, bless, bless what I have done. Because God says it doesn't work that way. I would ask you to pray a simple prayer that I prayed at 11 years old. Jesus, I recognize that you died for my sins in my place. Thank you. Will you please forgive me? And will you come live inside of me and change everything? And watch what God will do. If that is you, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I'm going to pray and conclude, but afterwards I would love to have a moment I'm just going to hang out up here. I would love just to explain what that means so you can can feel the difference that so many of us have felt, that every day is different. It doesn't get easier necessarily. Jesus promises that our roads will be straight, not smooth. We look for smooth. He says straight and straight to his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the sweet and tender reminder of your love for us, of your grace that's ever-flowing and ever-increasing, your mercy that we taste of every morning. God, I pray that we would indeed walk out uh, the commission you've called us to, that we would uh, we'd be faithful to proclaim the eternal gospel with our lives, with our words. And give us opportunity, God. Would you please give us all opportunity this week to share the gospel with somebody, with somebody. And give us boldness, Holy Spirit, when that opportunity arises. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's be reminded again, church, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's given this to us to walk in. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.